Appreciate y'all making it back out tonight. I realize it's Super Bowl Sunday. Sorry, y'all gonna miss the start of it. But uh, hopefully we can deal with something a little more valuable, a little more eternal this evening. Um, I'd like to tell y'all how I got about um, trying to answer some of these questions. I gave out uh, just some small surveys to the uh, college group on Wednesday night and uh, a few to the small group leaders for the youth group. And the things that I'm addressing are uh, questions and concerns that these younger people had. And I just want to say, even if you don't necessarily have doubts or questions about some of the stuff I'm talking about, these kids have these, have these kind of questions. So it's, I have a good friend that has these kind of questions. Yeah, or you have a good friend that has these kinds of questions. Um, so it's, even, if, even if it's not necessarily an inward concern of ours, uh, for our enrichment of others, it should be, uh, we should have knowledge of it. So, lie number two this week is the Bible is not authentic. This guy, Kirk Eichenwald from Newsweek, December 23rd, 2014, he wrote, and this is word for word, no television preacher has ever read the Bible, neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Now that sounds real convincing and like he really knows what he's talking about. But, and, and he writes as if he's an authority on the matter. I mean, this is, this is front, you know, front and center of the cover of Newsweek. And it's not that difficult to prove all of this false. So we're going to talk about that. And this is kind of the, the norm for Western society nowadays. The uninformed are feeding off of others who are uninformed. And these types of people are so desperate to be right in believing that there is no God or that there is no way to be sure that they find themselves endorsing hollow arguments for the simple fact that they're agreeable to their own biases. It makes it easy to believe something when you already have presuppositions like, I don't think there's a God, so... If somebody says something like this, you're going you're to snatch it up real quick and kind of cling to it. Um, so we're going to work on smashing this to pieces tonight. All right, again, the statement of faith. We believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible authoritative word of God. This is from a biblical worldview, and this is what uh, is on our church's statement of faith. Uh, The Bible can't be infallible or authoritative if it is simply a bad translation. If we don't have extremely, extremely, extremely close to the exact words that were written down originally, then it cannot be infallible or authoritative. All right. So this is my prayer. This is Jesus' prayer. Uh, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So we're going to try to find us some truth about God's word. This is a legitimate question. I've heard this from multiple people in my 
uh, young adult life, maybe not so young anymore, right, Jerry? Ah, you're getting there, <laughs> People say that Emperor Constantine uh, dictated what is in the canon of Scripture, and this is pretty easy to disprove. Um, it suggests that the government at, at that time interfered with the message of the Bible. Um, Constantine is considered to be the last great Roman emperor. He was at, it was at the height of Roman power. The most territory they controlled at any time was around this time. And he did not have a negative impact on the canon of Scripture itself, but what he, uh, some of the actions he took during his reign led to the eventual uh, negative power of the state church that lasted until, you know, the end of the Reformation. Um, he came to power just after the worst period of Christian persecution in the Roman era. In fact, he claimed to have had a vision from God that assured him victory over his rivals and secured his place as the next emperor. Constantine's mother was a Christian, so in being sympathetic to believers, he forced another of his rivals to sign the Edict of Milan, which was designed to end persecution of Christians and to restore what Christians had lost during the past few years of open persecution. And this is talking about the Diocletian kind of persecution. It was the most intense, short decade of um, torture, imprisonment, and uh, kind of a witch hunt, hunting down of Christians across the Eastern Roman Empire. Not so much in the West, but very much so in the East. Okay, uh, Some would say that Constantine had converted to Christianity, but that simply it just wasn't the case. He still determined his own religious practices, practices, still worshipped the sun god, and knew very little about the Christian scriptures. The actions that he took actually seem, if you, you know, read about them as a whole in context, in context, it seemed that he was just trying to gain either favor from a god or uh, favor from the masses uh, of, because there were more and more Christians uh, by that time, despite the persecution. As we all know, if we look at any situation with our missionaries or anywhere in the world where Christians have been persecuted, that, those are kind of the places where Christianity grows the fastest. So throughout Rome, they were persecuting Christians and all it was doing was growing. Um, he made a few uh, odd changes um, around what, how he interacted with the church. He, for example, ordered his soldiers to worship God on the first day of the week, even though Christians had been celebrating the Sabbath on, on Saturday like the Jews had been. Um, but the, the big thing to remember is he didn't even make Christianity the state religion, but kept the tradition going of the emperor being the high priest of Roman paganism. Um, if he was to accept, have accepted Christ as his savior surrendered to him at, at any point, it would have been probably on his deathbed. So he wouldn't have been motivated to uh, unnecessarily impact uh, the church. Uh, the, the most direct contact and interference that he had with this church is he organized the Council of Nicaea that confronted the Aryan sect of Christianity that sought to degrade the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
He acted on the church's behalf by enforcing the rulings that were made by the bishops who attended. There were over 300 of them. He didn't make the rulings himself. He just enforced what they did. But the, the problem with this is it opened the door for the state to interfere on behalf of the church. So it's, it's an important uh, kind of idea to, to realize that when Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, wrote about the separation of church and state, it's not to, separate, it's not to save the state from the church, but to save the church from the state. Because throughout history, including this time, um, you know, the founding fathers had an example of, of what interfering in the church could lead to uh, by the state. Um, and, the, and the canon itself, why this is so fallible, I mean, the easiest answer is that the canon wouldn't be even formally constructed until at least 60 years after he died. So it's, it's, just, it's just a silly statement. Okay, how did the Bible become the Bible? We're talking about the canon, the, the number of books that we have in our current Bible today, and why are they uh, not the same as the, the late Latin Vulgate and uh, some other things like that. Uh, there are people who question why certain books are and are not included in the Bible. This is one of the questions I got from the youth. A uh, big reason for that is... Uh, one of the big reasons for that is the deuterocanonical books from the intertestamental period that were inserted into the Catholic uh, Latin Vulgate, and, and they were using it uh, starting in about the 14th or 15th century. The reason that these books are not included is because they do not have prophetic or apost apostolic authority. <laughs> um, an excerpt from 1 Maccabees, chapter 9, verse 27. See, this is from one of those books that's not included in our Bible. It states that there was a great distress in Israel, such has not been seen since the prophet ceased to appear among them. So they're talking, the first Maccabees here is talking about the state of the Israeli people in the intertestamental period. This is a period when God was, was not speaking, and this excerpt uh, affirms this Jewish tradition. Um, that, that God hadn't spoken after the pro words of the prophet Malachi. So if God was not speaking, these books could not have been divinely inspired and therefore could not be considered uh, to be scripture because our position as Christians is that unless a book of the Bible is inspired by God and written out by man, it is not to be considered scripture. So that's why it's not included in our Bible. It doesn't mean that those, uh, those books that aren't included from the intertestamental period are worthless because they're, they're not. They can give you good context uh, uh, going into the stories of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament and kind of see the perspective of the, of the Jews at that time because a lot of the, the excerpts from, from these intertestamental books are kind of like our biblical commentaries now in nature. They're kind of trying to interpret uh, what the prophets were saying from the Old Testament. So they're, they're not worthless. And some of the stuff they even came up with in their commentaries were right about what they expected the Messiah to be. The parts that they were majorly wrong about were the, the they thought he was going to physically come as a conquering king, but he came as an, a spiritual, eternal conquering king. And that's kind of what surprised them, kind of set them off balance. Um. 
So books that were excluded from the New Testament. Um, you've probably heard of some of them like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas and certain ones like that. Well, there's very good reason why those weren't included, uh, more so than the, uh, than the intertestamental uh, Jewish writings. Uh, the book of uh, the Gospel of Judas, for example, was excluded from the New Testament because, one, it was written later and not by Judas himself. Uh, two, it changed the gospel story from what was established in the four widely accepted gospels written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it presented a Gnostic view of Jesus by making Judas out to be the hero of the story. In the Gospel of Judas, he was the apostle that had a special and correct understanding of why Jesus had come. And by turning him over to the authorities, he was only assisting in Jesus' mission. Yeah, he was trying to force Jesus to do that. And that's how the Gnostic Gospel of Judas, which was written later, presents the gospel. Um, Gnosticism was, it was kind of a big deal during the early days of the church. It wasn't just kind of, it was a very big deal. And there's still, <laughs> I don't want to go too far with this, but there's still aspects and a, a taint of Gnosticism that has followed Christianity to this day. Um, I better stop. It was kind of Eastern mist. It was a kind of. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be lightly on it. I'm not gonna be too, too hard on it. It was kind of an Eastern mysticism that included a secret knowledge of the truth that could only be revealed through special means. Uh, Christian Gnosticism, which is not Christian at all, combined the secret knowledge that you had to have for eternal life with the person of Christ as a messenger for the truth, but took away from the divine person and work of Christ. These heresies were present in the early church even as early as when Paul was writing Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, where he writes, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. So he was already dealing with these people who were claiming access to a special revelation, a special visionary realm, as it's called right here, when he was writing from prison to the Colossians. So this is nothing new, and, it, and, it's, and it's still kind of around. Uh, moving on. First of all, the only really disputed book from the Old Testament was the book of Esther, because of its lack of direct reference to God when they were finally putting together the canon, okay? It was ultimately included because it still stood in harmony with the rest of the Old Testament and painted a picture of God's providence even in a time of exile. Also, the Old Testament had already been organized into kind of a capped off version when it was translated into the Greek Septuagint. There was a bit more deliberation over the formation of the New Testament, but much of it was cut and dried, they knew 
what belonged to what didn't really early on, uh, even though it wasn't formally put into a canon until around 400 AD. Um, the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, and the Revelation of John were so widely used and accepted by the second century uh, that they were never really in doubt. Uh, so the rest were measured against certain criteria to determine whether they should be included or not. First of all, the book in question had to be directly connected to an apostle. So it was either written or dictated by an apostle. The second criteria was that it had to be in harmony and without contradiction with the rest of Scripture. So um, that book of Judas, it failed not only in apostolic authority, but it also failed in harmony with Scripture. And it also failed, failed in near universal acceptance. Uh, they found, they've only found this gospel of Judah, or, uh, Judas in one place, or maybe, maybe even two. But um, the, there's thousands of uh, copies of what we have and what we use in our New Testament today in the Greek. And there's very, very little variation in, in the ones that they found. And nothing that they found takes away from the doctrinal or theological message of the Bible. They are either uh, synonymical differences or sentence structured differences that could have been anywhere from, you know, typos or, well, not that they'd be typing, but whatever you call it when you're, when you're writing, a miswriting, uh, not a purposeful and blatant change of scripture, okay? And keep in mind that the New Testament was not just decided in one setting or even a short length of time. It was, it was kind of worked on and, and it was just un, kind of universally known amongst the church. Like they, know, they knew like we use these certain letters that we've got copies of to teach these subjects and we believe that these were inspired by God. They, they just, they just kind, of, kind of knew that because it was kind of a universal agreeance among the churches. Uh, recurring events and movements that question what scripture, what was scripture and what was not over those first 300 years eventually forced the church to act and, and formalize the canon. An example of this came in the form of Marcion's heresy. Uh, he believed that he had received a special instruction and that the Jewish taint on the scriptures had to be removed. So this is kind of a Gnostic view. He rejected the entire Old Testament and only endorsed parts of Luke's writings and parts of Paul's. So we're talking the Gospel of Luke, Acts, and then a, a few of Paul's letters is what he had. And he combined it into his own canon and he started his own denomination and his own sect of Christianity. So this directly challenged what the church uh, as a vast majority was, was, was teaching and, and pushing. Uh, the church quickly ex excommunicated him and rejected his viewpoints. And we can affirm through this instance, since we know that Marcion died around the year 160 AD, that there was an overwhelming majority view on what should be considered scripture early on. It, even though they didn't formalize the canon until 400 AD, they already knew what was supposed to be in there before 160 AD. 
And, you know, that's right after the, the deaths of uh, the, the last apostles, you know, not, not long after the deaths of the last apostles. All right. I put LeBron James on here because of uh, King James. Because that's, that's the King James everybody knows nowadays. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. <laughs> but uh, anyway... A few years ago, I overheard a young woman in a conversation with a uh, young man, and, and the girl was doing her best to explain that King James himself had decided what and what not to include in his Bible. This, this, these are her words. This is her reasoning. Uh, I heard the guy, he defended the Bible, but she was completely convinced that the Bible was a fabrication by authorities in order to control the common people. And here, here's the truth uh, behind the blown-up lie, okay? There were a few discrepancies and slight wordings that reinforced the authority of the Church of England and the crown to be found in the original 1611 print of the King James Bible. He wanted to push the authority of the Church of England and, and make sure that his authority wasn't challenged by any wording in Scripture. So he, it, these weren't vast changes now. These weren't big changes, but it was changing uh, certain words that would have been directly translated into uh, English, like the English word congregation. He would translate it as church because it reinforced the power of the Church of England as the state church, okay? And, and, and there were just a few other things like that. But the good news is for the most part, uh, the text was translated accurately and this is what's kind of the breakthrough and has kind of set the standard for what we do even now. He describes uh, that he had working on it, extracted uh, from the Hebrew and Aramaic text for the Old Testament and used the Greek to translate the New Testament. See, this wasn't a translation from the Latin as some others had done. And this is really early uh, translation to the English language. But he translated from the original source that he didn't himself, his scribes did, but that was, that was the goal of it with a little bit of King James himself mixed in there. Not much at all, though. Let me emphasize that. But uh, most of the discrepancies in the text, almost all of them, would later be cleaned up and refined by the time of the 1769 Oxford edition, which is really close, almost exactly the same as what the King James Version is now, okay? It's, what we use now is not the 1611 edition with its slight flaws. What we have now is closer to the 1769 Oxford edition. All right. Let's talk about when the Bible itself is translated into English, the most up-to-date, credible, and accurate versions of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament, and also they use the Septuagint sometimes to kind of bounce off of uh, the Hebrew, and it, it, they, we use a Greek New Testament to uh, a compilation of all the manuscripts of all the writings, as up-to-date as we possibly get from what we found as old as we can find it, and uh, to translate the Bible into English. We're not, this, I guess why I'm expanding on this so much is some people believe, 
and are misled to think that all the versions that we have are based off of the King James. We don't translate the Bible from English to easier words in English. We translate the Bible from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English, just like you would translate from the Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, and Greek into German or into any other language. It's not just a rewording of the King James. It's going back from scratch. Uh, you can kind of see on this chart which versions seek to make it a more literal word-for-word translation from the ancient languages and which ones use, try to use more modern or dynamic equivalents, is what they call it, terms to uh, get the message across. A lot of times the more dynamic equivalence is a little easier for people to understand than a more word-for-word um, in, uh, translation. Um, the truth is that there are certain words in the Greek that are not true equivalents, uh, that there are not true equivalents for in English. I had a typo on here myself. Um, for example, there are four different words for just our word love in Greek. Eros, phileo, agape, and storg. And each have a slightly different meaning and takes more words in English for us to uh, explain. But the Greek, uh, you know, it, a whole, it takes a whole sentence for us to explain what, you know, one of their different words for love meant. Um, out of all these uh, on this chart, um, some people would swear by the King James as the only version you can use. And I would... I'm going to stick my neck out here, and I'm just going to say that the King James is not the only version of the Bible you can use, and I'm going to say that plainly. In fact, it's not even the most literal word-for-word version of the Bible. These are. In the ESV. Yeah, they're not any more accurate, just more literal word for word, because there's a lot of words in the Greek that are hard to translate, because there's not an exact equivalent in English. Greek, uh, the common Greek was a very elaborate language with tons of different words in it. More than, it was more, way more elaborate than English. So we do our absolute best in these English translations, just as people who are translating the Bible into German would use their best German words to get as close as they could to uh, a dynamic or formal equivalent, the best you absolutely can. And there's really, to tell you the truth, um, I've used ESV, I've used KJV, I've used NKJV, HCSB, and NIV, and I, there's, you're not going to find a difference in doctrine in those books. You're not going to find a difference in theology. There's, there's slight wording differences, and some of them are easier to understand for people who don't have super extensive vocabularies. Um, <laughs> um, even books like, you know, the New Living Translation or the Living Bible, they're, they're, they're not 
they're not worthless, but you should not try to take them in an exegetical kind of Bible study and extract doctrine from them. You need to use a slightly more literal uh, version of the Bible for those types of things, but you can accompany your study, your personal devotion time with, with those less literal versions of the Bible, and that's perfectly fine, okay? I just wanted to make that clear because that's a question that the kids have because they have, they have people that are trying to legalistically say that there's only one or two versions of the Bible you should be reading, and it confuses them. And there's no reason for us to do that. All right. Dead Sea Scrolls. Finally, how do we know that our Bible is still accurate? After all, the first books were written over 3,000 years ago. Fortunately for us, we've been able to recover older manuscripts over time, especially the past 200 years as archaeology has moved away from grave robbing into historical and scientific study. Uh, Before the discovery of these Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest surviving Hebrew Old Testament, because that's what this is, the Dead Sea Scrolls were the Old Testament and copies of the Old Testament found in caves uh, to the east of Jerusalem called the, the Qumran Caves because it's close to a, an old ancient town that's not there anymore called Qumran. And they found these scrolls that uh, had different uh, Old Testament books or, uh, and different excerpts in these jars. And they've been preserved all the way until, the la- until last century. These weren't found until last century. So we went from having a... Uh, an Old Testament where we could find no earlier uh, copies of from 800 AD before this to these go back to 300 BC, okay? And you can take what's on these Dead Sea Scrolls, compare them to the Masoretic text, which is the Masoretic is the Hebrew Bible that they used right before these were found, and there are, the differences are so tiny that it is just ridiculous to say that people are going in and trying to change this, this stuff. They're, I mean, it's just slight wordings, nothing to change anything about the meaning of anything in the Bible. And that's, that's almost a, it's like a 2300 year difference between what's written down. And that with the Greek, it's, it's the same way. There's the differences in what we have now, in Greek, and the differences between uh, what the, the, the pieces of, of different Greek manuscripts and copies of New Testament books that they find in these old, dilapidated house churches and things of that nature, the differences are so minute, even, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 years later, that it is extremely difficult to make the argument that the Bible has been changed. And... When you know that, that, when you understand and have the knowledge that the Bible is not just translated from another translation and the, the NIV doesn't come from the KJV or the HCSB doesn't come from the KJV or the Geneva Bible or anything like that. It's taken from the 
ancient language manuscripts, you can easily understand that the Bible is extremely accurate still. These are just examples of different things that they found. Okay. Got a couple verses I'd like to read here at the end. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And I just want to tell you, we got a lot of naive coming up. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I, that things are a little different than, than they used to be even when I was a kid. Um, my mom and dad and my friends' mom and dads would drag us to church and take us to Sunday school on Sunday mornings. And we knew, you know, these, these Old Testament stories and, and stories about Jesus. And now... The, I mean, there's not very many kids in Sunday school, are there, Jay? Um, I don't know what's happened, but uh, it's, it's getting easier to deceive the hearts of the naive because there are more naive than there used to be. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad, but Jesus leaves us instructions let us, let us not be naive, but let's kind of take in and, and take to heart what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents as, and innocent as doves. Today, our young adults and students are being bombarded by lies that contradict and attempt to discredit the information that we have discussed here tonight. Uh, like I said earlier, even if you don't have doubts about these kind of questions, I assure, they're, they're, I assure you that there are lots of younger people who do, and, and adults even, that, that don't have the biblical knowledge that you do, and, and the, the legacy of faith that you do, that, that do struggle with these things. So let's be wise as serpents, and not be naive to these kind of questions, but seek to have an answer. Um, not, not just for us, but for, for others and, and what we're doing in, in evangelism. Our church um, has a, a focus in missions and outreach. And um, more and more, these are the kind of questions that, that, that people have. And if we are going to be outreach focused, uh, we, we, yeah, and we, we got to kind of, Make it a point to have our finger on the on the pulse of this kind of stuff and have and have answers, you know, or, or direct them to to the right answers and not just be like, well, I don't know, I've never, I'm, I don't, I don't know if I've had a had a problem with that, and it, because if we sometimes if we answer that way and we don't do it tactfully, it's truthful, but we can make them feel alienated, like, oh man, there must be something wrong with me. I don't, I don't. I don't understand some of this stuff in the Bible and I, and I, don't, feel, I, don't, I don't feel the Holy Spirit telling me that all this stuff's true, you know, or, or what to do like these people claim to. Um, 
for example, dot, did, did the Lord beam down his mouth upon you and was like, hey, dot, I want you to go be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. No, he didn't, did he? He's left plenty of information about what you should be doing with your life in here. And, and that's what we need to focus on. And we need to focus on having enough ammunition to defend this. And we need to focus on knowing what's in here. And uh, so this kind of uh, finishes up my more historical kind of series, kind of two-part series. Um, the next time I talk, two, two weeks from tonight, and it's going to be more inwardly focused on the Bible. Um, it might be a, a difficult uh, topic. Um, I've not quite uh, landed on anything yet, but uh, all those questions that I got in those surveys from those kids were really, really difficult. Uh, so anything that, that I do end up talking about is, it's, it's going to be tough and probably over my head, but I'm going to do my best, okay? Um, is there any questions about anything I've discussed tonight? Cannon. Um, a cannon can be described as uh, anything's set of 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 uh, of history that is truth. Like some people uh, talk about uh, Star Wars in the Star Wars canon in the Star Wars universe because they have the movies that are, of course, the Star Wars canon, right? But then they have comic books and things that are you know, outside of the canon, outside of the official Star Wars universe. So basically, the canon of the Bible is the official divinely inspired scripture and things surrounding it, whether it's modern commentaries, ancient commentaries, or whatever else, that's not considered canon, even though it could be good and, and worth reading. Like if John Piper writes a book or, um, you know, you read John Calvin or John Wesley or, or Martin Luther, those aren't canon scripture, but they're useful for um, extracting things from scripture. You know what I mean? So to, yeah. Thank you for the question. Anybody else? Yeah, now, I think. I don't, I don't know how to handle that because uh, you know I can't tell the kid, hey, look, if you're reading the wrong Bible, boy. <laughs> you know, the well, the is, the easiest solution to that uh, is like when when Jerry speaks on Sunday morning, he speaks out of one version of the Bible, and people bring their other versions with them to church, right? So Jerry puts on the board the version that he wants to use. So if you're, say you're doing Sunday school and you're just going to use a verse or two, um, you know, something you could do is uh, use a green board, like a, a chalk, and maybe get, get one of the kids to write out uh, the verse on the board 
from the version that you want to use or write it up yourself. And that way everybody's on the same page with, this, with the same version. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Just, just try to use a common version with, when you're teaching. Uh, that way it's, it's clear what you're, what you're trying to get across. Yeah, and that, that's hard to do. They, you know, they would be much more informed and much smarter about the Bible. Yeah. If they would just read the Word because, it, you know, it... Yeah. You know, one, well, it's... One of the things that helped, and I'm just hitting on that this morning, is, uh, especially, you're talking, you've got middle school kids. But, and again, but if we as parents were sitting down and having Bible reading with them... That's sort of what I'm driving Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could, I mean, you can only encourage people so far to, to, to read the Bible. I mean, they're going to have to be convicted and pushed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can only do what you can do. Mr. Dot. Sounds like a Jerry saying. He said that's true because you can rub salt on its tongue. You can rub salt on its tongue. Right. The Bible tells us we're supposed to be salt and light. So. And so a lot of times that's what the teachers are doing. They're rubbing the salt on the tongue of the kids to help yeah. get it. Yeah. You, you can only massage it so far. You can only push it so far before, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit eventually is the one that is, is, you know, in charge of our faith. So uh, we, get, we can only do our parts as, as human beings, as Christ has prescribed us to do, to go and make disciples. But um, ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit is up to the Holy Spirit. This is, this is hard to prepare for. Okay. Well, um, if nobody else has got any questions... Yeah, that's kind of like C.S. Lewis's testimony, like we talked about last week. How he was—he called himself the most reluctant convert ever to Christianity because he did—he fought it all the way to the end. Even after he believed in God, he it took him two more years before he was willing to surrender himself. 
So uh, it's the Bible, if, if you spend enough time in it or around it, it's going to prove itself true. It does, it does most of the work for you. <laughs> you just have to know what's in it and know a little bit about it. Uh, but uh, I'd like to pray for us tonight and let y'all get out of here. And I thank you for not falling asleep on me. Lord, I thank you for today and uh, all the blessings you've given us, God. Uh, I'm thankful for, for everyone that's here. And Lord, I just hope that, uh, that we all are able to take something away from uh, these kind of conversations in, in an encouraging way. And um, Lord, just be with us this week as we encounter those who don't know you and help us not to use uh, things that we're learning as uh, argumentative pieces, but um, uh, 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 lines of exhortation and, and encouragement and, and helpfulness in your timing, uh, God. And uh, like I said, just be with us this week and uh, help us to be always reminded of what you did for us on the cross. That, above all, is what we should be uh, the most thankful for. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.